Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This week's guest on the Playmakers Playbook is widely regarded as the best NRL player never to win a premiership, a point his colleagues at Fox Sports never let him forget. He played 330 games for Parramatta across 15 seasons and was a captain who led by example, finishing his career as the first player to have made more than 12,000 tackles. But his life away from the game had its challenges. He's beaten a gambling addiction and is a leader in the conversation around problem gambling. This is the Playmakers Playbook brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply love a good story, this podcast is for you. In his playing days, Nathan Hindmarsh was one of league's most popular stars. And since retiring in 2012, that popularity has only increased. His last game at ANZ Stadium in Sydney was special and finished with a moment he'll never forget. Tim Manis says... I think he's saying we might take the two and give it to Nathan Hindmarsh to have a crack. Well, he's put some pressure on the man retiring. We want Hindy to try and kick the first goal of his career. And he's going to go with the sand. It's a retro attempt at goal. Isn't that good to see? That is... He's on a toe poker. <laughs> I'm not liking his chances at the moment. I think he's going to go around the corner. He doesn't. He's not sure. He's not sure what he's going to do. He's going to milk it for all it's worth. Here's the strike. Get over. Yeah. You champion. What a way to finish a career after 330 games for the Eels between 1998 and 2012. Nathan Hindmarsh's final act on a footy field was his first kick at goal, and he nailed it. Hindy, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, that was a um, it was an opportunity. I got to have a kick on the last on the last um, game of my career. I was a little bit, I suppose, a little bit selfish in a way because Luke Burt was our kicker for many, many years. Like. 14 years he was our goalkeeper pretty much so he was not given the chance to kick in the last game so I, I felt a bit bad for him because he didn't get that chance <laughs> but, but he re, he reminds me every now and then he reminds me every now and then I'm sure he does oh, you're an emotional bloke what was that day like eight years ago difficult difficult because you never know well I didn't know if I'd made the right decision you know you, and that's why play, that always plays in the back of your mind you know have I made the right decision have I, you know, can I go another year longer? 
all these all these things happen, and also too, the, the fact that this is going to be the last last time I run out with the boys, last time I turn up to preseason training, last time I, I tackle someone properly on a professional level, all these things started going through my, through my head, and I probably didn't probably didn't let myself enjoy it as much as I should have either. That was probably the thing that gets me now. Like I should have looked back with excitement on my career rather than disappointment that it was all finishing. Yeah, yeah. Right. it's interesting how you uh, how you approach it. That game was moved, I think, from Parramatta Stadium to the Olympic Stadium to accommodate the crowd, largest ever crowd uh, for a non-finals game. I mean, that's remarkable in itself. And as you say, Luke Burt retired on that day. I think there were a number of Dragons players retiring on that day as well. I think uh, Benny Hormy was retiring, so was Dean Young. So I think it was, yeah, we had 50-odd thousand there, which was good. Like, we were we were a bit unsure about moving it from uh, Parramatta Stadium because, obviously, Luke Burt and I wanted our last home game to be in front of our, our home crowd. But I think we made the right decision about getting it out there and, you know, getting an extra 20-odd thousand in there to, to watch us play our last game. Both myself and Birdie and Dean and, uh, and Benny. It was eight years ago now. That's flown. That has flown. Yeah. I was kicking around uh, names for potential guests for the podcast. Your name came up. Um, you were a keynote speaker at a Young Leaders Day that my daughter went to a few years ago. I think we've spoken uh, about yes. this. Um, yeah. You've done a fair bit in that space over the years. Oh, I have, particularly when I was uh, working for the NRL in the community department. I was so nervous that day, you know, just talking about life my life experiences you know all those other things that come along with being a professional sports person and it was it was daunting you know there was over a thousand kids in that in that auditorium and it was i was i was nervous as hell but um you know they seemed to enjoy it and that was the main thing i don't know if they got anything out of it Uh, (laughs) well can you can you think that what what were the key messages what do you want kids to know you know you've got four boys of your own what what do you want them to know i think the biggest thing was it, was, it wasn't what they needed to know. It was about, I suppose, giving people the opportunity, listening to people, taking advice from people, being respectful. Um, and I think at the moment, a bit of the younger generation have lost a little bit of that, I believe. In fact, you know, the, the, the politeness of people, you know, chivalry never dies. You know, I, I teach my boys, you know, it's important that you you know, if someone's coming out of the door, particularly if it's a lady or a female, you know, you wait for them to leave, come to the door, you open the door for people, use your please and thank yous, all that type of stuff. Um, so there was a bit of, there was obviously a bit of that involved, but also to, um, you know, if you want something bad enough, you know, you, 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 you have to work hard. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be ups and downs. And that doesn't mean because you've had one down, that doesn't mean it's a fail. All those sort of things. You know, I... Um, I use my um, background coming from where I came from in Robertson, the Southern Islands, a small country town, uh, being given the opportunity to to play professional rugby league um, and taking those opportunities while they were there instead of, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of kids that come from the rural areas who don't who don't give the, the city life the chance and then all of a sudden they're, they're you know, they're, they're in their 40s and they're going, well, what could have been? Mm. You know, and then always, they're the always one sitting at the pub talking to their mates going, oh, I had the opportunity to play, but never, never really went through it. So there was a whole, whole raft of things that I was talking about that at the end of the day, it was a bit of a blur. Well, hopefully they remembered some of it. Yeah. Um, um, and is resilience a part of what you're talking about as well? And I guess that's something that you've had to um, display over many years, not only probably with your 
uh, footy career, but also you know with your burgeoning uh, media career as well. I mean that that's something that that everyone needs in life. I think so. Yeah, and I, again, that's it goes back to a bit of the. I don't think we've. I think you can you can teach resilience. I think, and I'm probably talking back in a in a rugby league sense about working hard for each other, not giving up. But I suppose you can take that into life as well. Um, and you know, I had. I, I had a good leader at the start. I had Brian Smith as my first first grade coach, and he really taught you about resilience. Um, and that's whether or not it's resilience through physical exertion, you know, getting going, keeping going, keeping going, or it's resilience when someone's probably not the nicest to you, not the kindest to you. How to deal with that? Because Smithy was a he was a hard he was a hard taskmaster, and you could either crumble like a deck of cards in front of him and go to water and not and not respond or you can, you know, prove to that person being Brian that, you know, I am capable of doing what is expected of me and I'll go out and show you that I can do it. And that was how Brian kind of weeded out players who probably didn't fit his mould. He wanted strong, uh, physically strong-minded players. And and I suppose that's the same in um, a bit, a little bit in media coming through. You know, you, you doubt yourself every now and then. You know, am I able to do this? And I still... I still get very nervous now. I can do the Matty John show, no problems, because that's my that's my um, that's my personality. But when it comes to talking rugby league on those on those panels, <laughs> for instance, you know your your Sunday tickets and all, which I enjoy doing. Don't get me wrong, but the, my mentality just I just stiffen up. I just stiffen up, and I I get off the show and I go, "Geez, I wasn't good today," and I start doubting myself. So the next time I go on there, I'm even more nervous, and I get off the. the TV again. I go, geez, I was shit that day. I was shit again. And then I start building up this this sort of mentality that I'm going to be shit when I go on and talk about rugby league properly, you know. And that's and that's really starting to take its toll on me. And I've had to talk to people, and I'm um, I've had to ask for a bit more advice of people that have done it before, and even that my peers, you know, that which is which is easy to do. Well, a lot of people think it's hard to ask for advice of your peers, but you know, when you're in that space. And you want to improve yourself. Asking people that know what they're doing is the easiest thing. Was that you as a player as well? Did you did you used to doubt yourself as a player, or is that something that's come to the surface in your uh, in your media career? No, as a player as well. Only only around only around representative, because um, I think I was very comfortable with Parramatta. You know, I knew where I stood. I knew what I was capable of. The team, the club, you know, what I was capable of. But then, when I started playing State of Origin. That's when you you know you your you first couple of origins you sit there and you go oh you look around and you're seeing these faces Andrew Johns Ben Kennedy all these people and you go I don't I don't deserve to be here mm. and it takes a while to get over that sort of feeling until you and that took about two or three origin series to be honest with you so it's, you know close to close to ten games before I realised well no this is I belong in this space I deserve my role I deserve my position in the side so that that did take a while that was that was an uncomfortable feeling. But it's amazing what a few beers can do to lighten things up, though. <laughs> to, to improve your confidence, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, just quickly on on Brian Smith, that um, that method, that coaching method, would be regarded as old school now. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily work with uh, the modern uh, the modern day player. Did that change throughout your career, where uh, coaches had to be a little bit more softly, softly? Yeah, and not just coaches, but players, like leaders in insides. You know, for example, when you know Nathan Kalis was the skipper of the Eels for such a long time, um, and when he retired, I took over the role of captaincy. 
and I remember I was in a, we were in a video session. This was late in my career, and I blasted the team, and I blasted an individual in the side. And he pulled me aside. He was only a young player, rookie player, and he pulled me aside. Said, "I'd rather you wouldn't talk to me in front of the boys like that. It's a little bit, you know, you're a little bit full on." And I was, I was shocked. I was gobsmacked. I really was. And I didn't, un- and I didn't understand that. And I still struggle to understand that today because I had, you know, such a, a long career playing one style, being taught one style. It took a while for me to to register the fact that, hang on a sec, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe I can, you know, tear Fui Fui another one for not doing what he's supposed to do. But this other bloke, I couldn't, I had to go take him aside and explain to him quietly and give him a bit more positive reinforcement rather than, uh, you know, do it again and you're gone type of thing. Mm. So that, that, that took a while for me to register. And I still, again, I'm still struggling to find that that's a method, but, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm a very old school. Um, but with um, coaching, yeah, coaches as well. Coaches, I went from Brian Smith, um, Michael Hagen, who was very relaxed. Um, uh, who else did I have? I had Jason Taylor there, who was probably one of the first coaches that went, you know, this is this is how we do it. You know, as in, right, oh, Heine, that was, that was shit. You know, this is what you did wrong. I'll show you what you did wrong. And I went, yeah, okay. But then I heard him talk to another player, right? I see what you're doing here. You know, if you if you if you move up in this space here, you'll be able to stop that defender on the inside. Uh, so next time, try and think about doing that. That that that, and that was the type of thing. So that's that was probably JT was probably the first coach that probably changed that mold for me. That I still didn't. I'm a I'm a one. I'm a one brush type of man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Just barge well, Brian Smith, Brian Smith, I would play a game and I would have, I, well, the, when the full time Tyron went, I would know what he would show of me in video, what I'd done wrong. And you'd blast you, but you'd learned not to do it. Only because you were worried about the backlash from doing it. So you learn quickly that way. And you, yeah, and you probably developed a, a reasonably thick skin along the way as well. Well, you did, yeah. And you had to. But that's that's all part of being an eighteen-year-old coming to the city, wanting to be a professional rugby league player. Mm. Hey, um, three hundred and thirty games for the Eels. We're going to talk a little bit about resilience here. Twenty-three games for Australia, seventeen state of origin appearances, uh, and the list of individual awards goes on and on and on. Uh, but among all of those, Nathan, uh, all of those achievements, there is no premiership. Um, now I know the guys, the guys at Fox, they take the Mickey out of you all the time about that, but. Deep down, does that still hurt a bit? Will it always hurt a bit? It'll always hurt, particularly I won against the um, against the Knights. Definitely that one. That was that was one that got away. And even talking about it, it gives me the shits a little bit because you know, and I can. We were the best side all year, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty, you know, diplomatic here and all that type of stuff. But I, I, we were easily the far better team all year. We were smashing records. We were confident. We were you know, we, we trusted each other's ability. But on that night, yes, Newcastle played a, a, a good style of footy for, for a bit, but we just, we must have just shit ourselves. I don't know what it was. I can't put my finger on it. Joey Johns was outstanding. Um, don't get me wrong. But we were pumping sides by 50 points in the semifinals. Then we get to the grand final, where it's 24 nil at half time. It was, a, it was the one that got away. And that's one that's always going to hurt. I think you'd only lost four games. As you said, you dominated all year. Only lost four games all year. Um, now, there was a moment, Tamana Tahu scored a try uh, to make it 28-6, I think, with 16 minutes to go. Do you remember that try? Yeah. yeah. Tell, yes. tell us about that. 
so that that was that was Newcastle's night. The ball bounced up, pretty much went bouncing the end goal, went straight up in the air, and Tamana scored. And I remember I went to put a bit of kick pressure on. It was Joey that kicked it. Went to put a put a kick pressure on him, and I've turned to watch the ball go over my head, and the way it just sat up in the end goal there, it like bounced on its end and went ten meters in the air, and then on the way back, I was jogging back to the end goal area. I was crying. That's when I, that's when the tears started for me because I knew we weren't going to get back from that, and you know all the all the hard work, the opportunities we had, and remember this has got to come off the back of 1998 where we had the dogs on the ropes the grand final qualifier 1999 was the same against Melbourne Storm we finally made the grand final and we and we and we shot ourselves in the foot so it was a little bit of a lot of build-up disappointment there going into that game or at the end of that game um 98 that was your first year I think at at the Eels yeah Um, that that prelim against Canterbury 10 minutes to go up 18-2 you lose 32-20 in extra time, yep. so there's there's this litany of you know <laughs> of, of missed opportunities in in prelim finals, and and you talk about oh one and and oh nine. We'll revisit that in just a moment as well. But um, it makes me wonder whether there was something missing in the organisation uh, in terms of leadership. When you've looked back over the years, what could have changed things? What could have tipped you over the line where you didn't quite make it? You know what. I, I, I can't answer that one. I really, I've got, I've got no answers for that one because I thought every every team we had in those in those games, we had great leadership, we had great coaching, um, and it was just one of those things. You know, the the Bulldogs game in 1998. You know, we had players like Dean Page, Joe McCracken, um, Jim Dimmick, Jason Smith. They were all on the side who were grand final winners in just in 1995. So only a few years earlier. So they had they had years and years of experience. We had a great coach. It was just, it's just one of those things. You know, we've, we tried to put our finger on it myself, Nathan Kalis and Luke Bird. We've tried to work out which one's the jinx. So, because <laughs> we all, we all play, we all played in them and we're still trying to work it out. So, it, it's, if, if the Eels go on and win the, a grand final this year, we know it's going to be one of us. Or well, it could have been Timmy Manor because he was there in year nine, in you know, 09. <laughs> so, one of us was a jinx. So, if the Eels do win it this year, we know it's definitely... Kalis, myself, or Luke Burt. Well, they're certainly in with a red-hot crack, aren't they? 06, 07, a couple more uh, prelim final losses. Let's go back to 09, uh, the loss to the Storm. Now, um, you know, and you get asked about this all the time, but uh, the Storm later stripped of that premiership because of salary cap breaches. Um, Should you have been awarded that premiership? Look, if we were awarded it, it would be a very hollow feeling, very shallow feeling because, Nick, it's, it's not... It's not getting that trophy at the end. It's it's celebrating with your mates at the eighty minute mark. That that's the feeling. That's the feeling you want to have. It's not getting the trophy. It's not looking back at the records. Well, this this is from my from my thoughts anyway. It's not looking back at seeing your you know grand final winners, Parramatta Eels nineteen nine two thousand and nine. It's more that euphoria, that sensation of. Celebrating with your friend, your mates, you work your backsides off all year. More than you know, in in my case with Kalis, it was from 1998 to 2009, same as Luke Burt. So many, many years. It's sharing that that brief moment of winning a grand final. Mm. Just that. So for them to hand it to us would have been very, would have been a very empty feeling. With an empty feeling, but I always say this: I look, I'm yeah, they were over the salary cap by quite a lot. But they still they still had to play well. 
They 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 did, and we pushed them. And for a team that wasn't travelling too well all year, being us, you know, we finished. We just scraped into eighth, I think it was. Um, and to get all the way to the grand final, how we just scraped into eighth, I think was a was a fair accomplishment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Anyway, you were awarded the co captaincy in 2010, so the, the season after that, that 09 loss. With Nathan Carlos, what did you want to bring to the captaincy when you were when you were given the honour? You know, this is, you know what, not, not, I didn't want to bring anything. I didn't need to bring. I wasn't. I'm not a. Um, I'm not a motivational speaker. I don't lead from, you know, sitting there having the you know the pregame chats. I'm not a motivational speaker that way. I the only way I could have brought anything was the way I played on the field. You know, you don't leave anything. Don't leave anything out there on the field. You you bust your backside. You turn up. You train hard, and that's how I always led. And that's how I've always done things. Um, you know, that's there was a bit of a story. You know, there was myself, McVell, and Nathan Kalis were you know considered as captains early on, and McVell and I never said boo to each other or anyone else in the side. We just did our stuff. So it was an easy pick for Kalis because he was quite. A, he was Kalis was always a good leader. Like he was a, I think he was the youngest captain for New Zealand as well. Or the most capped captain for New Zealand as well. So he's with Nath Kalis, he's he's a he's a great motivator and he's a great leader with what he does with through his actions. And for me, I was just through my actions. So I didn't really offer too much apart from you know what? I could organise a good social event. That was <laughs> <laughs> that could have been our downfall because I won the spoon for us. Why does that not surprise me? Um so uh who have been the, the best leaders you've seen then over the stretch you know you talk about the different sorts the, the guy who whispers in blokes ears who gives the motivational speech and, and the guy who just goes out and does it like yourself oh there's been there's been a few I'd, first off i'd have to go dean pay dean pay very very similar to nathan kalis well i think nathan kalis molded a lot of his attributes from dean pay um doesn't say much, but when he does say something, it, he means it, and he people sit up and they listen. And I think uh, Dean Pay was one of those, uh, very tough, very uncompromising as well, Dino, um, and a player you wanted to go out there and play for because you knew he was going to put in just as big as effort as what you were. So Dino was one. Jason Smith, um, just with 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 Jason, he was just he was very quiet. Smithy was quiet. But when he went out in that field, it was a totally different, totally different bloke. Um, very great leader on the field, but just in the background at training and all that type of stuff. So very, very different to Dino. Um, and then of course you got Nathan Kalis, um, and Jason Taylor. Like Jason Taylor when he was there, Michael Butner as well. They were very good leaders. Um, JT and the fact that with his with his game management in the, in that aspect, you know, JT was probably one of the best halfbacks I've played with at the Eels, um, and Michael Butner was also someone who just Butes was a, a leader in the fact that every day was a great day. Um, you know, every day was 
come on boys we're training we're sp- yeah we're everyone's smile and he and he got people he got people motivated that way because he was he was he was full of energy and just a great bloke to have around the around the sheds and um in a way we you know it was a bummer that those blokes didn't get the grand final as well yeah you were a one club player um you must value loyalty uh, very highly yeah you know, I, I do mate i do i'm I'm very loyal, um, and also too. I'm, I'm, but also on, on saying that I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a homeboy. You know, I'm not a big fan of change. Never have been as a kid. Um, you know, I grew up in a small town, in Robertson, for 18 years. Knew everyone, knew everything. Uh, got a scholarship to Fairfield Pats in Sydney. Lasted three weeks there because it was just too different for me. And I know going back to taking those opportunities. You know, I that's why I tell a lot of kids take your opportunities. I was very lucky. Um, to continue my rugby league career, even though I, I threw away a rugby league scholarship. Um, so I make sure I tell kids, look, give it a chance. But um, go back to loyalty. I, I, I enjoyed the club. I loved the club. I loved the direction it was going in. Um, and the only time I went um, shopping, so to speak, was really the back end of my career. I think it was um, 2008, maybe 2009. Um, Daniel Anderson said, look, mate, you know, you're, you're coming to the back end of your career. Um, would you want to go shop somewhere else? And I went, well, maybe a change is as good as a holiday. So I would never play, not another NRL team. I went over and checked out some Super League sites. So I was very close to signing with um, St. Helens. And then I decided, you know, young family here, coming towards the end of my career, a lot of connections, a lot of networking here already done. Let's just stay in Australia and we'll just see out my career in, at Parramatta. But it's a it's a great club. I love every minute of it. Those connections and that networking. I, I did a um a podcast with Bart Campbell a couple of months ago, the Melbourne Storm owner, and he obviously has managed uh, a number of um, stars, sporting stars throughout the years. He was talking about Richie McCaw and the fact that you know Richie McCaw being a, a one club player and uh, is now regarded as the most um, respected and trusted man. In New Zealand, there's something about that, isn't there? If you could say to young players now, maybe you know, forego fifty or a hundred grand a year, but you'll catch up at the back end of your career. Yeah, is there something in that? I honestly, yeah, I think there is, Nick. Yeah, and that, and that's that's what's happened with me. You know, I, the, the relationships I've formed with with you know organisations, companies um, during my playing career, it's it's important for life after footy. You know, it's connections. You know, a lot of people talk about these. GPS schools like Joey's and all that. It's about making connections at those schools. But a lot of us as rugby league players, we're not we're not in those schools. So it's it's important that we do make those connections while we're playing. While we're and going back, Brian Smith was very good at that too. I remember we used to go to functions and all the players would just sit on one table because we're too shit scared to go and talk to anyone. Yeah, yeah. So Brian Smith came up with a rule because many of the young blokes we just sit, we wouldn't talk, we just sit at the table, talk to each other. And then Brian Smith said, right, you're only, allowed, you're only allowed to sit with one other player and you've got to go talk to someone at the sponsor or, or or someone else at this function. You can't just sit at your own table with another half a dozen rugby league players and talk shit with each other. Go out and mingle, go out and network. And that really that really sunk in with me. Uh, it, it did because um, you, you don't know how long you've got in this game. So it's important you make relationships and, and, and partnerships with people and you never know what's going to happen or whenever you may need a favour or anything like that. So it's, it is very important. And um, I was very lucky that Brian was my first grade coach in, in that aspect in, for that part of my life. 
talking of loyalty, there was though uh, one moment you had a nibble from rugby union, didn't you? I did, yeah, yes, the Tars, yeah. Uh, but that was, I think that was more of a that was a bit of fantasy, I think. You know, it was it was when everyone was doing it type of thing. You know, a lot of there was a lot, a lot of talk about a lot of rugby league players going over to rugby union. I'd played one game of rugby union in my life, and that was for Mossvale High against I think Chevalier or Oxley College down down home. And I had a ball. We got absolutely hammered. I think they beat us by about sixty points. But the amount of kids I trod on, and <laughs> you know, up their backs, because oh, you could ruck we, in those I, days. We could ruck in those. We had a ball. We were rucking our own players, and legs had come off, and their jerseys were all ripped because we just tread not running all over blacks. It was it was fun. It was fun. I didn't like the scrums. I, you know, we there's a there's such a big difference between obviously rugby union, rugby league scrums. We got hammered in scrums, and you know, there was a lot of screaming from our boys. Oh, my neck, my neck, all that type of stuff. <laughs> um, but I'd only played one game, and there was a bit of talk about you know me joining the Waratahs for for a stint. But I think if it came really down to the crunch, it, it would have been a no go for me. You know, I, I love my rugby league too much, and I'm, and I think it was just a bit of fantasy. Fair enough. Um, there is that theory that you learn more about yourself. Uh, through adversity than perhaps through success. Uh, you have had that time of adversity uh, with your gambling over the years. Yeah. And you've really become an advocate for problem gambling and, and you know someone that, that people can look to if they've got the problem and see your experience. Yeah. Um, just take us through what happened with you and, and the message that you now sell around problem gambling. Well, well the message is... You know, if it's not any fun anymore, put your hand up and ask for help. Because a lot of for a lot of people, gambling is a paid source of entertainment. You know, and for for the small majority minority of us, the the, the tiny one percent of us, it becomes a real problem. And that was that was me, where I was gambling every day. Um, I was spending thousands a week on on the punt, only pokies. Um, I'd have a flash on the horses every now and then. But for me, it was poker machines. Um, and for me, it all started, it was just curiosity. You know, I knew what a poker machine was. I'd walked into the Paralegs Club and put a few dollars in and I had a win. I had a win and, and that's where it all started for me. And, you know, the next day I'd spent my whole month pay packet in about 15 minutes. Um, embarrassingly, I had to ring the old man, ask for some money. And I tried to gamble that money that he'd just given me to get it back so I could pay him back and, and have some money for myself. And that's where it all started for me. And I went through years and years of it, um, you know, ups and downs with relationships with my wife, who was my partner, my girlfriend back then, who's now my wife. And we were going through a bit of a rough time because I was still gambling. She knew I was gambling. She found out I was gambling. And gambling, it was a sense of escape for me. For a lot of times, you know, I we used to go out with the boys all night, you know, not all night, but a lot of times during the week. And I was not a big fan of big crowds, places like that. But, you know, I'd get go out with the mates and the teammates and I'd hide in the pokey room as a, as a place to just get my thoughts together, get my senses together. And I just played the machines and that would relax me. And then it just kept going and going and going. But probably the turning point wasn't probably until my wife realised it wasn't me you know, just being a, a dickhead with money, I just wasn't pissing up the wall. I was, it was, well, I was pissing up the wall, but it was me. I had an issue with it. And then we had a, we had some good conversations after that because we had some good fights with some good barnies, but we had a good discussion, a good, a good sit down chat, right? Oh, you've got an issue. Let's solve it. 
So I went back to the club, para club, the Eels there, and our education and welfare officer. He put me in touch with a with a counsellor, and I went and did some professional counselling, which I thought was going to be a quick fix. You know, I honestly did. I thought, you know, I'll do my I'll do my sessions with him. You know, things were looking good. Hadn't gambled in a few weeks. Things are going to be great. Stepped out there. Couple of weeks gone past. Went out with the boys. Got on the drink, which is not a good mix. You know, alcohol and gambling does not. You know, alcohol with anything doesn't mix too well. Um, and then I started again. I went back to counselling, and he said, "Look, you need to tell. Have you told your teammates?" I said, "No." He goes, "Go and tell your teammates. You need that support network around you, so when you do go, they can look after you. They can, you know, keep you away from them. All those type of things." And that that was the that was a big thing for me. Telling the teammates, a little bit embarrassing. But they kind of already knew anyway there was an issue because the amount of, you know, I wouldn't barely see them. I'd be in the pokey rooms all night. But when I told them, they were able to, um, you know, look after me to a point where, you know, they would give me my own money to buy beers every now and then, all that type of stuff. Um, and they would keep conversation flowing, which was a big thing. So if the conversation stopped, you know, you're at the pub or the club or you're sitting there at the bar, the conversation stops that's when I start looking around going, right, where's the poker machines? That's, yeah. So um, that was it. But I'm, I'm, I'm good now. I'm good now. Um, I can go into a pub or a club and I don't have that, those same urges, that same excitement. You know, some smells will trigger things where I get, oh, that's, that's a, remember that smell, that's exciting. Let's go and play the pokies. I don't get that. I don't get that anymore. Um, so I go to a pub or a, an establishment where there are machines and I can have a have a good night without gambling, which is which is a great feeling. because um, I was spending a lot of money. Um, and I know there's some people out there who who've done a, who've done their asses and they've hit rock bottom. And that's another big message as well. You don't have to have hit rock bottom to have a problem. A lot of people assume you have to have lost your house, your relationship, your you know, your job to have a problem with gambling. You don't you don't have to have done you don't you do, if it's not if you're not having a good time with it you've got to see someone it doesn't mean you have to lose everything to go and see someone so that's a big message we push and talk to people you don't be ashamed to talk to people i've spoken to a lot of people and i'm not a trained counselor i can only talk from personal experiences but you know i've, I've spoken to a lot of young men um and that's only via contact on instagram you know, on Twitter where they've, they've reached out for a bit of a chat and, you know, I've helped a few kids that way by, you know, don't try and hide this. Don't try and hide your your your, your relationship with gambling. Tell people, because the sooner you tell people, the more accountable you are to people, I believe. And therefore, you're, you're letting more and more people down. Um, so, yeah, I'm good now. I've, I've been working with clubs in New South Wales for a few years, going out and about a lot of Indigenous communities, a lot of rural communities where it seems to hit harder. Um, and just telling my story and, and giving people the hope that there is there is there is a chance to turn things around with a bit of support and a bit of determination. Have you had to let a bit go in terms of you know some some pain and regret? I'm just thinking in terms of you know materialistically, you know you would have been on pretty good coin for a long time. Um, how much money do you think you put through the pokies oh, over the years? I would have worked it out be close to four hundred thousand, but that's that was over a you know a few years period or six, seven year period maybe, but that's, that's nothing to compared to what some people are losing, you mm. know, and that's, that's, that's the thing, you know, and I know there's players out there now that are still gambling, you know, we've, you know, you hear whispers out there and it's, it is an issue for that small 1% of us that have that real deep issue with it. And unfortunately some of them 
don't quite get the help they need early enough because they're too embarrassed or they're too ashamed. And that's what we try and change, you know. Get out there, put your hand up and ask for help. Is the game itself doing enough? I mean, if you know it's happening, then clearly yeah. there are decision makers who know that it's happening as well. Well, they, they definitely know it's happening. Look, the game has changed, Nick. In that, in that aspect of player welfare, it has changed tenfold in regards to when I first started. You know, the, the amount of resources players have these days at their disposal. You know, the you know, one phone call, they've got, you know, relationship, you know, counsellors, they've got gambling counsellors, drug and alcohol counsellors. And I think the NRL is doing a really good job there. The, the amount of courses or the amount of seminars that the, the, the NRL players go through each year to try and, or not try and, but just let, just the amount of seminars they go through in regards to, you know, mental, your, your mental health and your and your well-being is it's gone through the roof. Excellent. Uh, good to hear. Uh, you are a passionate advocate for uh, Western Sydney as well. Um, is that uh, is that something that keeps you busy? Any chance I get, I'll give Western Sydney a plug, mate. It's there's nothing wrong with it. I know it's, but that's a good thing because we'll take the we'll take the piss out of bloody the eastern suburbs people, and they take the piss out of us. So it <laughs> it works it works both ways, you know. Look, we have a working with Fletch, who's a who's a Bondi wanker, you know, and it's it's just part of life, you know. It's 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 a good it's a good rivalry to have, I think, because the West is changing, you know. Western Sydney is changing so much, you know. Parramatta. You know, if only I had a crystal ball, I would have bought real estate there. You know, mm. when I first moved in there, because it's gone, it's gone through the roof, and it's changed so much. It's a great place. It's a great city, Parramatta. Um, then you move over the Blue Mountains. You know, it, there's so much to do out here, and people are just caught up in beaches and and the city life. But there's so much to see and do out in the west, and it's a it's a great spot to live. You know, great schools out here. My kids love growing up out here, so I enjoy it. And just finally, on your kids, um, four boys, you must be uh, a very proud dad. I've seen you with them uh, a little bit. Um, they play footy? The two eldest do. The two eldest play rugby league. Um, and then, so it's rugby league on Saturdays for the two elders. AFL on Sundays for Ooh, the two elders. Is that controversial? You know what? Anything they want to do. I know I've, I've, a lot of people say, oh, what are you doing here? I said, well, my kid's having a run around. He wants to, he likes playing with his mates and he likes the game. So as long as they're doing something, Nick, I don't mind if they went off and did dancing or do what they're doing something on a weekend where they're either working as a team or working with teammates or they're learning how to lose, learning how to win gracefully. As long as they're doing something like that, I don't, I don't care what they do, but they will be doing something on weekends. Um, and I've got my third one. He's he's soccer. He's into soccer. And then my four-year-old, uh, he's into YouTube and mobile phones. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have any NRL future NRL players in my house? I don't think so. I don't think so. I might have to go again to try and get one. I might take it to number five. <laughs> so, <laughs> but as long as that, that might look, my I help. I help with uh, my, with my eldest boys under. He plays under thirteens, under fourteens, Division Two, and the boys that turn up there, they know they're not superstars. They know they, and the parents know they're not superstars, which is a great thing, because sometimes parents get a little bit, a little bit, you know, confused about, you know, their, their their own child's ability, but they just turn up. They talk about Fortnite for ten minutes, or they talk about what game they've been playing on Xbox with each other. They go over run around. They learn a few skills, but they just love coming to training, and that's the big thing we try and push me and the other coaches. Come to train and learn a little bit. The more, more, more have have fun. You want to have fun because if you're having fun, you're going to come back next year, and that's what we want. That is a very 
nice note on which to finish. Nathan Hindmarsh, it was uh, good to catch up. I've been looking forward to this one. Thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. No worries, mate. Take it easy. Good to talk to you. Nathan Hindmarsh on the Playmakers Playbook. He won the Proven Summons Medal, the fan's choice for Player of the Year, five times during his career, hugely respected by both his peers and fans. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by Build Corp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And as always, if you like what you've heard today, give us a five-star rating or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next time on the Playmakers Playbook. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.